about it. All right, let's pray and let's dig into the Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you, Lord. We ask, Lord, now as we go to your Word, you would give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us. And Lord, as we look at how people have responded to Jesus in tonight's chapter in so many different ways, I pray for the people who are here tonight, those that are watching this on live stream, we'll hear it on podcast or radio later, Lord, that we'd, we'd all be challenged with how have we responded to Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen. So, whenever you teach a Good Friday or an Easter service, you always have four choices, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Because they all four have, you know, the crucifixion. They all four have the resurrection. And I have actually not taught the Luke section in probably a 10 years. And so the Luke section's got the most detail of all of them, and it has a lot of other interactions with other people who are having interactions at the time of the cross. And my prayer is that we'll learn lessons from each of these different people that have interactions with the Lord as he's headed to, or he's on the cross, or after he's died on the cross. And so that's my heart for tonight. So quickly, though, as we come to tonight's text, we know that uh, you know, Palm Sunday has passed. Jesus enters in on the, and again, we get to Daniel. If you're coming on Sundays, you know we're in the book of Revelation. Uh, we won't be this Sunday as we look at the resurrection, but we will get back to that. But as we look at Revelation, we see the end times and we see, again, you know, God's, God's plan in the end. But what we're seeing with, with, uh, with, in the Gospel of Luke is that, and we're going to do Daniel after Revelation, is that Daniel prophesied that from the day that they were commanded to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and had uh, be 173,880 days until the Messiah entered into uh, entered into Jerusalem. And guess what? You take from when, when in Nehemiah they were commanded to rebuild it, and you take 173,880 days. And guess who's marching in on Palm Sunday? Jesus Christ. Amen. So God's word rocks. The Bible's always right on time. But we know that on Palm Sunday when, they came in, when he came in, there were people anticipating it. And they started out by singing Hosanna, which means save now we pray you. But the savior they were looking for was someone who would free them from Roman tyranny. And they wanted to be delivered physically on this planet when what Jesus came for was far greater than that. Aren't you glad that he didn't just come to deliver us from the government? Thank, I'm thankful he came to deliver us from sin. Amen? That we have the promise of eternal life. And so we know that some of the very same people that were crying out Hosanna four days later were crying out crucify him. And so that brings us to tonight's text. Grab your outline quickly. And like I said, this is a little bit different approach to, uh, you know, Good Friday. But I want us to take a look at this and examine our own hearts. We're going to pick up in verse 26. And so we're going to see how has the message of the cross impacted your life? How many of you guys meet people that say, I believe in Jesus? They just say that, I believe in Jesus. And then here's the question. I don't ever ask people, do you believe in Jesus? I say, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you been born again? Does the Holy Spirit live inside of you? Are you a new creation in Christ? Do you have the promise of heaven? Is Jesus Christ your best friend? Amen? And that's the exhortation to ask people, but we're going to see a lot of interaction with Jesus here, and a lot of what happens today is when people, and here's the problem we have in our country, and the problem we have in the world today, people are biblically illiterate, and they know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. Amen? And many, even amongst amongst the church. So we're going to see some interactions here. First, we're going to see a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene, who travels a great distance, about 800 miles, 
to come for Passover. Now, again, this is a God thing, right? Passover is the same time as the crucifixion. And they have, people have gathered together in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Passover was looking back to their deliverance out of bondage in Egypt when the blood of the lamb and the shape of a cross, the angel of death would pass over and you would be delivered. The blood of the lamb and the shape of a cross. Who in the world is that pointing to? And of course, it's pointing to Jesus and it's, in, it's on Passover that Jesus would be crucified. So the city is swollen up. People have traveled great distance. Simon of Cyrene, it's 800 miles and he didn't you know, get on a jet, okay? He was riding a camel or a horse or a donkey or walking. And however it was, it probably took him a month to get there. And a lot of these people that would come a great distance, it might be, they might only come once in their lifetime. And so we're gonna see that Simon Cyrene comes to celebrate Passover and guess what? He might have been bummed initially when his Passover celebration gets interrupted by having to carry a cross. But I promise you that as he, as he is in heaven right now, he realizes the greatest thing that ever happened to him was having a head on a collision with Jesus Christ when he was on the way to the cross. Amen? So the first person we're going to see is Simon of Cyrene. He's going to be moved from religion to a relationship. And maybe that's true for some of us. Some of the people watching on live stream or hear this on the radio later, that maybe you have religion, but we got to go beyond religion to have a relationship. It's, we, don't belong, we don't belong to a church. We are the church. Amen? We don't just belong to an organization and put our faith in an organization. Our faith isn't in Calvary Chapel or you know, any other church. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. Amen? <clears throat> Number two. The daughters of Jerusalem, they're going to be weeping without understanding the judgment which is, which is to come, and they're mourning over the suffering of Jesus. And when you see Jesus suffering, you should mourn and you should grieve, especially when you realize that his suffering is my fault. Amen? It's your fault. It's my fault. He didn't deserve it. I've talked about this before. How many of you guys have seen the passion of the Christ? How many of you guys have seen the scourging? Is that not the most difficult thing I've ever watched in my life? It's hard to even watch. It, and it, go, it seems like it's going on forever. And our Savior endured that for us. And we're going to see them weeping, temporary weeping, without understanding the judgment to come. See, when we look at Jesus in the cross, you'll hear people say, why don't, why don't they call it Bad Friday? I mean, he died. I mean, it's, that's not a good Friday. It's a bad Friday. Well, let me ask you a question. If you're going to hell and somebody's, and you were going to spend eternity weeping and gnashing of teeth and someone said, look, I'm going to pay the price for you so you don't have to go, would that be a good Friday or a bad Friday? That'd be a great Friday. Can I get amen to that? And that's why it's good Friday. But sadly, when they're seeing the suffering of Jesus, just remember, he's not on the cross anymore. He's not being tormented in you know, all the, that he went through for us, for our salvation. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Amen? He's inter making intercession for us. He's preparing a place for us. And he's coming back for us. Amen? And so, yes, we should look back to the cross, remember the depths of his suffering, so we remember how much he loves us, but know that he is not suffering in this uh, temporal body anymore, although he has the scars in heaven. Number three, the thieves on the cross. Guys, you got to, you know, thieves on the cross, this always blows people away, especially when people try to tell me that, well, you got to do Jesus alone, not enough. You got to do this and you got to do this and you got to do this. And whenever you bring up the thief on the cross, their head explodes. Because the reality is that you have two thieves, both guilty, both with equal access to Jesus. And both of them, at least for part of the time, mock Jesus. But eventually one of them asked the Lord to forgive him. And that makes all the difference in the world. Amen. 
Guys, it's not about how close you are to people who know the Lord or how familiar you are with Him. At some point, you must come to the end of yourself and cry out to Him and seek His forgiveness. Amen? And we're going to see that in the Thieves on the Cross. Number four, the centurion. Centurions were, were known for being brave men. And a centurion typically had a hundred or more people under his authority. And this man, who obviously doesn't really know the Bible at all, doesn't know Old Testament prophecy more than likely, all he does is sit there while everything's taking place. And as he watches it, he comes to the clear understanding, this guy's God. This is the son of God. The religious people who've been studying the Torah and studying the, you know, everything in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and they missed the Lord. And here's a guy that knew very little, and all he did was sit there and watch how Jesus endured the torment, the suffering, and the shame. He was there when the sky went black for three hours. He was there when dead people got up and started walking around, and how come everybody on the planet didn't get saved when that happened? Amen? If your grandmother died 12 years ago and she comes knocking on your front door, I'm thinking that, that, that there needs to be some investigation. Can I get him into that? We need to talk about this. And you know why that happened? Because Jesus was proving that he had triumphed over sin and death. Amen? So we're going to see the centurion. Then we're going to see the crowd and Jesus' acquaintances. Uh, Cause to be curious and concerned, but not fully committed. There were those that were, oh, what, what about this Jesus thing? And, they, you know, they want to know a little bit about him, but they never fully surrender to him. And even those closest to him, we know that when he went to the cross, they abandoned him for the most part. You know, Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. And, the, and most of the rest of them outside of the apostle John hid from him. And we're going to see again, guys, it's one thing to say we love the Lord. And you'll find out we did the baptisms today and praise God for how God's using Pastor Joshua on this campus. Amen. And so we had a baptism today, and I think 35 or 40 kids got baptized. And there were some kids who were afraid to get baptized. And when we were talking about it, I said, look, if you won't make a public stand for Jesus at a baptism in front of your, your schoolmates, you're never going to do it at work or in your neighborhood or when you're in the grocery store or anywhere else. Amen? If you can't get baptized in front of a cheering crowd, how are you going to do in front of a jeering one? Amen? And so we see that these, you know, there's this... The, the women of Jerusalem, again, the crowd and Jesus' acquaintances, they are looking from a distance. We see them curious and concerned, but not fully committed. Then we see Joseph of Arimathea. We know that Joseph of Arimathea, like Nicodemus, was one of the Sanhedrin, 71 ruling religious Jews of the day. And Joseph, like Nicodemus, had been walking, watching Jesus from afar. But we're going to see that when Jesus goes to the cross, he's going to go from thinking about him to fully committing to him. He's going to defile himself as a priest. As, and he's not going to even be able to participate in the Passover because he's going to claim the body of Jesus. He's going to bury him in his family's tomb. And of course, we know it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Amen. And then finally, we're going to see the women. And I want to say this about women. Be encouraged. And somebody correct me if I'm wrong. I can't find one woman in the New Testament that by name is referred to as an enemy of Jesus. I can't find one. And guess what? Last one's at the cross. First one's at the tomb. Where were they? Women. So praise God for godly women. Can I get an amen to that? Praise the Lord for that. And so we'll take a look at the women in the end. All right, so let's begin there looking at how has the message of the cross impacted your life? Again, it's been, it's, he's been put on trial. They mocked him. 
They, they threw a robe on him and made fun of him. They took a crown of thorns and crushed him on his head. They made a, a staff out of a reed. They beat him with it. They covered him and would wind up and hit him in the face and say, prophesy who hit you. When they uh, scourged him, it's a flagellum. It has 13 thongs on it. And then uh, and it has glass and uh, metal and bone. And they would reach back and the person being scourged would, would be off the ground. They would take their feet off the ground and tie their feet to this pole and tie their hands to a pole. So they could not defend themselves in any way. And then the, you know, the Romans loved being the ones that say, we want to torture the people as much as we can before they die. And they were so proud of crucifixion, but crucifixion was so heinous that it wasn't even polite conversation. They didn't use that term. But what happened was, after all that they had done to Jesus, and then we know there was the incident with Barabbas, right? Remember Pontius Pilate? Sometimes he's proclaimed to be kind of an innocent bystander, but Pontius Pilate was an evil, vile man who needed to get saved. Amen? And what did Pontius Pilate do? Even he was like, dude, why do they want to kill this guy? He hasn't done anything. Because Jesus hadn't done anything other than, you know, pull the rug out from under the religious people. Amen? And so what happens is we know that he tries to give them a way out, and he brings out Barabbas. And Barabbas is a picture of you and me. Amen? Because Barabbas was a murderer. I believe Barabbas was probably the one that the third cross was meant for. Amen? Before Jesus went there. And what happens? They can either pick Barabbas to be set free or the Savior of the world mass murderer, vile human being, or the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now we know that God's plan was always that Jesus would go to the cross, because if he doesn't go to the cross, we don't go to heaven. Amen? So praise God for his grace. So Barabbas is a picture of us. So all of that has taken place. And now we come to verse 26. We're starting to look at these final moments. We've seen the interactions with Herod. We've seen the interactions, again, with Barabbas. We've seen Jesus scourged. Again, it was so brutal. He's been beaten in such a horrible, horrible way. And now here he is, his body beaten, his body broken for us. And then we pick up there in verse 26. And it says in Luke 23, verse 26, Now as they led him away, leading him to the cross, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, who was Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. It was a part of a prisoner's humiliation that when you were crucified, they would be beaten, but then, and, and they would give you 40 lashes minus one, and most people did not survive scourging. But Jesus obviously did. God, God the Father was not done. Okay, There was more that needed to be done. So he's carrying the cross, but because he's been scourged, we know that he's been up all night. He's been beaten. He's been mocked. He's been thro- through so many things. You know, when they threw that purple robe on him and then pulled it back off, all the open wounds that took place from a scourging, your, your organs would be showing. Your flesh would be just destroyed. They pull that back off. The, the wounds are reopened again. And so Jesus is carrying the cross. And because he's fully God, he can do anything. But because he also became fully man, his physical body collapsed under the weight because of all that he'd been through. And when he collapses, there's this crowd in Jerusalem, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, have gone, come to Jerusalem. So the population of the city is the, the time of year. is like Super Bowl Sunday, right? I mean, everything is full. And here they are, they're lined up. And here's Simon, who's traveled 800 miles. And here come these condemned three going by. And all of a sudden, this man falls right in front of him. 
and the cross is on the ground. And then we know from other texts, he feels, he feels a, a sword or a spear on his shoulder from a Roman centurion, puts it on his shoulder and says, you need to pick that up. Now here's a man that's traveled 800 miles for Passover. This is maybe a once in a lifetime trip. And now he finds himself walking through people who are cursing and throwing things at the condemned. And he's in the middle with them, carrying the cross of a condemned man. And no doubt when it first took place, he felt like, I don't deserve this. Why am I having to do this? Jesus has been examined all night, mocked, beaten, finally scourged. And Simon, one of thousands of Jews who had traveled to Jerusalem, was now drafted by the Roman soldiers. Again, what looked like a disaster initially became an incredible blessing as it brought him into contact with Jesus. Let me say this. I believe that every trial we go through, the most difficult things we go through in life are all opportunities for us to come into contact with Jesus. Amen? Because it's in those, count all joy when you fall into various trials, trials for these patience, the perfecting of your faith. You know, and, and when we go through difficulties in life, we come to a place where we're at the end of ourselves, and we can't fix it and we don't know what to do. And so what does it cause us to do? To cry out to the Lord. And so often it's those great disasters that we wish would have never happened that are actually the things that God uses the most to mold us more to the image of our Savior. And this disaster, this seeming disaster here in the life of Simon of Cyrene is actually the greatest moment of his life. That's the greatest moment of his life because even though he couldn't have anticipated it, didn't even fully understand what it meant as soon as it happened. And then later, you know, at the cross and seeing all that took place, we know that two of Simon's sons are mentioned later as being, being used mightily by God. Simon gets saved, his family gets saved. And you know what? He went there to celebrate Passover, to look back out of deliverance and bondage in Egypt. And he had a head-on collision with Jesus Christ and was born again. Amen. So imagine being Simon. It looked like a disaster. And the two key points again, carrying the cross. You know why uh, carrying the cross is a symbol of guilt? It was all, Jesus couldn't carry it because of his frailty, but I also believe he could, shouldn't carry it because he wasn't guilty. Amen? So carrying the cross was a sign of guilt. And Barabbas was guilty and he got set free. And Simon of Cyrene was guilty, just like all of us. And he was a religious man of devotion. But again, he came, through a humble act, he came into contact with the Lord. His son's names are Rufus and Alexander. They're mentioned by Mark, and they're greeted by Paul in the Roman church. And again, Simon's divine appointment with Jesus had an impact on his entire family. And you know, it's so true. I've shared this before that I saw this stat recently, that 91% of the time when the father gets saved first, the whole family comes to the Lord. It's only 14% of the time when the wife comes first, and it's only 3 or 4% when the kids come first. Now, why is that? Because God uses men to be spiritual leader in their home. And ladies, if you're single, you don't settle for anything less than a man that's going to love Jesus more than he loves you, who's going to lead you, love you, serve you, and pray for you. Can I get an amen to that? And if you think he might be that guy, let me and Joshua have a little chat with him. We'll find out. <laughs> So first we see Simon of Cyrene, we see the divine appointment, and we see how God uses what seems like a disaster to him to draw him closer to the Lord. He moved from religion to a relationship with Jesus. Number two, temporary weeping without understanding the judgment to come. Look at the daughters of Jerusalem, beginning there in verse 27. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented for him, uh, lamented him. So the public execution drew huge crowds of spectators 
And one involving Jesus would no doubt have the biggest crowd of all. Because Jesus had been in public ministry for three years. And you know, he's performing miracles. When, when he went before Herod, when Pilate passed him off, Herod just wanted to see a miracle. And so Jesus was known for miracles. Jesus was known for, he walked on the water. He healed the lame man. You know, he healed the, gave sight to the blind. He fed the 5,000. I mean, all these things he had done. And so no doubt there were many who, this would create a greater interest in this king of the Jews. You know, this, this man of God. And so the women are there. And while most of the crowd mocked and derided Jesus, there was a group of women who followed him mourning after him. And again, as I mentioned, women are used mightily by God. Now, here's something I hear a lot too. They'll say Christianity is oppressive of women. Well, first of all, that's the biggest bunch of nonsense I've ever heard in my life. Because go find me a non-Christian nation and show me how women are treated there. How are women treated in Iran or Iraq or some of those places? Afghanistan. How's that working out? Amen. But you know what? The greatest value of women is the place where Jesus Christ's name is being lifted up. Amen. So the News of his birth was first shared with a Jewish maiden, Mary, of course. Death witnessed by, a grieving, by grieving women and the good news of his resurrection delivered first to a woman. In verse 28 there it says, But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to themselves, to the mountains, fall on us, and the hills to cover us. For the, if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done to the dry? Now, in AD 70, we know that there was a, a Roman siege upon Jerusalem, and the, the temple was destroyed, and Jerusalem was wiped out. To, I mean, and, and the Romans, you know, and a lot of people think that that's when the, the great tribulation was. Okay, they're called a preterist. I don't want to get too off track. But they believe it's a, a, something that all took place in the past. The problem with that is, where was the millennial kingdom? When were lions laying down with lambs? And if Satan's on a chain, what, that'd be an awful long chain. Can I get him into that? So I don't believe that's the case. But you just need to know it was so horrific that there were some that believed this is the great tribulation. But it wasn't. And by the way, the book of Revelation, Revelation is speaking of future events. Uh, AD 70 is when, you know, the attack on Jerusalem came and in, it was 90 and 90, between 90 and 95 when the book of Revelation was written. When he says there, Greenwood, it's like years when Jesus was on the earth is a time of blessing, but the nation reject, rejected him and became dry wood fit only for the fire. What he's saying is, look, if persecution's taking place when I'm here, what's it going to be like once I'm gone? And he's encouraging them and letting them know, look, you're weeping for me. Don't weep for me. You need, to, you need to weep for yourselves. You need to weep for the, the, the judgment that is coming for those who reject the Lord and don't get right with him. So we're reflecting Jesus' results. Again, rejecting Jesus' results in righteous judgment. Again, as a pastor, that's the thing I hear all the time. What kind of God do you serve that allows children to die? Or why does this happen? Or why are there earthquakes? Or why does this happen? And I've had some pastors say, well, God has nothing to do with earthquakes. Well, that's nonsense because God has everything to do with everything. Can I get into that? Does stuff happen without his knowledge? That's just foolish. Amen? Now, that being said, he desires that none should perish, no, not one. He's a loving God, a gracious God, and a merciful God. You know why our planet's a mess? Because we're a bunch of stinking, vile sinners who ruined it. Can I get an amen to that? 
It's not God's fault. It's our fault. And it's only by his grace we haven't been leveled. Amen? And so when people want to say, what, a, you know, what kind of loving God? No, what kind of sinful, vile people? And you know what? What's amazing to me is while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. He knows you best and he loves you most. He knows every wicked, vile thing you've ever done or thought, and he still loves you. And so these women are there in their mourning, and the Lord warns them. Hey, don't mourn for me. Yeah, Jesus is going to the cross, but he's going to go into the grave, and he's going to raise from the dead in the third day, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and, and uh, he's making intercession for us, and he's coming back, and he's in control, and he's on the throne. Amen? So we don't mourn for Jesus. We mourn for us, and we mourn for a world that has rejected him. Amen? So we see the daughters of Jerusalem mourning for, the, for Jesus' suffering, again, with all he was going through, and I understand why they would suffer, but he warns them that there's even greater suffering to come. And the greatest suffering comes when you reject Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now we're going to look at the thieves on the cross. And these are two uh, unique guys. We're going to get to talk to at least one of them in heaven. Amen? Just one of them, actually. But take a look here at verse 32. It says, There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. When they'd come to the place called Calvary, that's where we get Calvary Chapel, uh, there were, they, were cru- they crucified. There they crucified him. And the criminals on the right and the other on the left. So in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 12, Jesus was numbered with the transgressors and he was crucified with two criminals. Read Isaiah, Isaiah 53 is one of the greatest pictures of the cross and it was 700 years before crucifixion existed. When I meet Jewish people, they're open to talking. I always take them to Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. I read out of the Old Testament and boy, if you can't see the cross, you're not paying attention. And they typically steer clear of those texts because it points so clearly to Jesus. Again, the word there, Calvary, from the Latin Calvaria, which means the place of the skull. Those of you who go to Israel with us, when you, you know, we, we sit from the place, uh, the top part of the tomb, and you look out and you can see the hill where Jesus was crucified. And though it's eroded some, you can still see the skull on the side of the hill. So it's the place of the skull. That's what Calvary means. And you can see it. That that's where Jesus was crucified. You come into that same place, and there you see the tomb. And by the way, it's empty. Amen? Amen. So, it's, it, it, so it's crucified was a slow and torturous death, and criminals had, these two criminals had equal access to Jesus. So while they're hanging on the cross for many hours, these criminals have access to Jesus. He's right there. And they can talk to him, and we're going to see that they do talk to him. And we're going to see how... They each come to him in a different way. So it says there, when he come to Calvary, one on the right, one on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. This reveals our Savior's mercy and compassion, but also that even if a person doesn't know what they're doing, there is still a need for forgiveness of sin. Some people will say, well, it's not my fault. I didn't know it was sin. It's sin whether you know it or not. Amen. And here's the reality. All of us were created, again, not the Holy Spirit with us, but the conscience that we have that knows between right and wrong. And that's the Holy Spirit with us, convicting us of right and wrong. Because left to ourselves, we just think everything is okay. But you, you, we all know that there's certain lines we don't cross, that we know it's wrong. Even if you don't know the Lord, well, that's wrong. Although that line's getting more and more blurred every day. Amen? When you think having... Oh, I'm not going to get into it. Having people talk, read books to our kids that are dressed like women that are men. Come on, help me out here. But also, 
So the person who doesn't know what they're doing, they need to be forgiven too. Because he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But he's also showing them grace that they don't fully grasp what they're doing. They don't recognize that they're putting the Lamb of God to, to death. And that was God's ultimate plan. And they were being used for, for the Lord's will to be done. Fulfilling Psalm 22, it says, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You know, we don't have time to go through it tonight, but you can go through the crucifixion and you just see fulfilled prophecy after fulfilled prophecy after fulfilled prophecy and so many pictures of things from the Old Testament. When you get to verse 35 there, it says, and the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered at him, saying he saved others, let him save himself. I actually love this, that this, they finally admit he saved people. He saved others. Bingo. It's about time you learned something. Amen. They knew that he had healed the blind. He had healed the lame. He had, given, you know, he had done all these miraculous works. But they're mocking the Lord saying, well, if he can save others, then he should be able to save himself. You know what? He could have saved himself. Of course he could have. He could have saved himself without opening his mouth or saying a word. He could have thought the thought and wiped everybody out on the planet into a pile of dust. And why didn't he do it? Because he loves you. Amen? Amen? He endured that because he loves you. How do you determine the value of something? What someone's willing to pay for it. The next time you think you're of no value, remember that this is what Jesus paid for you. That you are so valuable to him that he'd rather die than live without you. And he proved it on the cross of Calvary. So he accused him of being a, they'd accused him of being a blasphemer, of being of the, the spirit of the devil. And now the truth comes out, these religious leaders, if you are the Christ, then save yourself. Guys, if he had saved himself, he wouldn't have been the Christ. Amen? Because he is the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, fulfilling Isaiah 69, 21. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. So they were mocking the Lord with the crown of thorns on his head. They were mocking the Lord by putting him in a purple robe. They mocked the Lord by handing him a scepter. They mocked the Lord here now too by trying to tempt him to taste something that is sour. They just want to torment him as much as they possibly can. Then he says this in verse 37, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Again, because they were looking for a conquering king. And what we needed was a suffering savior. Amen? A redeeming savior. Uh, one who would wipe away all of our sin. And so they're mocking the Lord because for them, what matters is conquering here on the earth. And herein lies the problem with the world today. People are far too concerned with being comfortable here, being famous here, having more stuff here, that they've lost sight of eternity, eternity completely. And guys, when this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. And none of this stuff that we think is so important on this planet is going to outlast this life. I've yet to see a hearse pull in the U-Haul. Can I get an amen to that. And you don't take it with you. We, naked we were born, naked we depart. Amen. The results are in. One out of every one person dies. That means we're all going to die and we're all going to be dead a lot longer than we're alive. We're going to spend more time in eternity than we ever spent here. And guys, we should be more focused on eternity and less focused on being comfortable in this temporary time. Amen. But they're saying, look, if you're the king, save yourself. You're really the king. They're mocking him with sour wine. And then they're mocking him by challenging him to save himself. For us to be saved, Jesus had to take our place upon the cross. If he had saved himself, 
he could not have saved or would not have saved us. And again, I just think of him enduring that torment, enduring that shame, and doing it because he loves me and I don't deserve it. And guys, when you think about how much he endured for us, how can we not tell others about him? If you think about how much he suffered for us, how can we not take a stand for him? How can we not boldly worship him? How can we not open up his love letter to us and read it? Notice what it says here. And the inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Now, the accusation is usually what was on the the top of the cross. So when people would walk by, it would say rapist, or it would say murderer, or it would say thief. And because Jesus had done nothing wrong, the only thing they could put was king of the Jews. So when people walk by, we know that the religious leaders flipped out about that, right? How dare you call him the king of the Jews? And they wanted him to take it down and change it. And Pilate's like, what's written is written, leave it alone. But so Jesus was without accusation. He's without fault. He's perfect, holy, and innocent. But he is, again, being recognized as the king of the Jews. Now watch how these criminals respond to him. So they've been watching all of this. They've seen the whole thing with Barabbas. They've been walking with him to the cross. They've heard the seven sayings, most of them at this point, on the cross of Calvary. And as he's doing all of that, now these two thieves are going to be speaking directly to Jesus. Look at verse 39. One of the criminals who who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and save us. So the first thief is only concerned about the physical. If you're really God, you'll fix this. And again, that's a prayer that a lot of people pray on this planet. If you're really God, and I've had people tell me, well, I told God if he's real, then he's got to fix this and prove it to me. He doesn't have to prove anything to anybody because he is God. Can I get an amen to that? And if you don't believe the law and the prophets, if you don't believe the word of God, if you don't look around at the creation all around you and see God, you're not paying attention, amen? And we don't tell him anything. We don't command anything of him. And what's happening? Well, if you're really God, prove it. Give me that promotion. I didn't get the promotion. There's no God. I have proof, right? If you're really God, then, you know, and there's this, this thing where we put God to the test. And he's already been put to the test and, and proven to be who he is, Amen. We don't test God. We trust God. So this first thief has a physical focus. He echoes the words of the religious blasphemers. If you are the Christ, get me down. If you're really God, fix things for me and fix them for me now. If you're really a God you want me to worship, then you'll do what I want. You know what? I'm so thankful God doesn't do what I want. Amen? Amen? Have you ever wanted anything that you look back and go, oh, that would have been bad. Can I? Amen. He's all-knowing, almighty, all-powerful, He knows more than us. We need to trust him. Put our faith in him. So the first thief, physical focus. You're really God. Get us down from here. Save yourself and take us with you. Let's break out of jail together mentality. But notice what happens in verse 40. But the other answer rebuking him. He's talking to the other thief. So Jesus is in the middle. The thief on this side, whichever side he was on, says to him, get us down. And the other one speaks through Jesus to the thief on the other side. And here's what he says to him. Do you not even fear God? Seeing you are under the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. So here's a man who's a thief 
who's lived such a horrible life that he's been, you know, sentenced to a death sentence. And even this man, in just a little bit of time being uh, around the Lord, recognizes that Jesus is innocent, that Jesus is God, and that we don't make commands of Jesus. He rebukes his fellow thief on the cross, and he recognizes Jesus for who he is. See, guys, before we can get saved, we first need to recognize we're sinners, and then we need to recognize that he and he alone is the Savior. Amen? There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Until we recognize that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no other hope, and there's no other path, and there's no other direction, until we recognize that, we cannot be truly saved. Because then and only then will we cry out to him. So he didn't command Jesus to get down, to bless them physically. He rebuked the blasphemer. He confesses his own sin. And he believes Jesus is without sin. And again, look what he says to him here. He doesn't say, remember. He doesn't say, hey, man, get me down from here, like his you know, uh, fellow thief said. But look what he says in verse 42. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. One's a demand, and one is somebody crying out. One is, if you're really God, get us from down here. And the other one's like, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, could you remember me? One's coming in arrogance and making demands of God, and one's coming in humility and crying out to God. And guys, that's how we approach the Lord. We don't make demands. We come in humility. Amen? God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. So he didn't demand Jesus to bless him physically. He confesses him as Savior and says, remember me. Not get me down, but gather me up. Not get me out of this mess on this planet, but when you get to heaven, oh Lord, bring me with you. Then he says to him, I love this. And Jesus said to him, as surely I say to you today, you need to have a first holy communion. Then after that, you need to have be baptized by a priest. And then you need to go to confession. You need to say 500 Hail Marys. And they, no, he doesn't say any of that. Amen. He doesn't say there's 500 other things you got to do. You got to keep this rule and you got to fulfill this thing and you got to do this other thing. And then you're going to go to purgatory. You better have some relatives that can pay off some priests to get you, get you, you know, prayed out. And, and, you, and, and you know, did you get your last rites? Because if you don't get your last rites, you're out of luck. And if you don't do this and you don't do this and you don't do this and all these other commands. What did Jesus say? Guys, forget about what churches say and let's see what Jesus says. What does he say right here? Surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Amen? Amen? Amen. It's not the cross plus 47 other steps. You know, it's not a 12-step program. It's a one-step program. Jesus Christ, him crucified and risen from the dead. Amen? God can use 12-step programs for other things, but it's not a 12-step program to get to heaven. Amen? Because again, when we add to the cross, what we're doing is we're saying that what Jesus did was not enough. We're also calling Jesus a liar because he said it is finished. To Tetelestai, which also means paid in full. So when you add to the cross of Calvary, you're denying what Jesus said on the cross and you're making him a liar. Guys, we cannot take that lightly. Amen? Well, I just think the Lord would want us to do more. No. No. Because if we could earn it, it wouldn't be a free gift. It'd be a paycheck. Amen? And salvation is a free gift. I just love this picture. Today. When do you say, will you be with me in paradise? Today. Today. Not 700 years from now. 
There's people that teach soul sleep. They say when you die, you go on the ground, you lay in the ground, and then eventually when the Lord comes back, you get resurrected. No, the Bible teaches to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You close your eyes on earth and you open them up in glory. Christians don't die. We just move to a much better neighborhood. Amen? We close our eyes here. We open them up in the presence of Almighty God, and everybody who goes doesn't want to come back here. Amen? Heaven's better. Heaven's better. Today you'll be with me in paradise. No soul sleep, no purgatory, no reincarnation. Amen? We don't die. Close our eyes on earth. We open them up in glory. And praise God, we leave this dead carcass here. They can have it. Amen? Now, we'll have new bodies during the millennial reign, and, and uh, you know, they won't be falling apart like these ones do. Amen? The more I'm in this one, the more I'm ready to move on. <laughs> Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Faith in Christ alone. Not faithless good works, not faithless... Should we be baptized? What's the answer? Yes. Absolutely. Faith, baptism is an obedient act of faith to what God has commanded us and called us to do. But, and then they get mad when you say this, did the thief on the cross get baptized? He didn't. They'll say, well, only Jesus can do that. You're right. Only Jesus can save anybody. Amen? Well, that's only because Jesus talked directly to him. Well, guess what? He died directly for me and for you. Amen? So, but should we baptize? Of course we should. Should there be good works in our life? What's the answer? Absolutely. By your fruit, they shall know you. Good works are fruit of salvation, but they're not the source of salvation. It's not Jesus plus good works save you. It's Jesus ruling and reigning in your life, you being born again, that will then produce good works. Amen? So it's not Jesus plus good works. It's not Jesus plus, uh, you know, uh, baptism. It's not Jesus plus faith and rituals. Again, the thieves had equal access to Jesus. One rejected him. One made physical demands of him. And the other one came humbly before him and cried out to him. And one of them was, did not come to know the Lord and spending eternity separated from Almighty God unless something happened that wasn't written in the Bible, which I doubt. But then you have the other one where Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Guys, it doesn't get any better than that. Amen? Today you'll be with me in paradise. That's what we want to hear. We want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Amen? So we see the two thieves. They had equal access to the Lord. One was looking for physical deliverance, and the other one, again, was confessing his sin to Jesus. He realized that he deserved the cross, that Jesus was innocent. Number four, to recognize that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. We're going to look at the centurion. Look at verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour... There was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Now, the way that they determined time was with sunup. So about 6 a.m. So the sixth hour would make it noon. So, in the, and, and, so Jesus has been brought to the cross early in the morning on you know, uh, Passover. And as he's there on the cross at, at, at noon, all of a sudden the entire world goes black for three hours. Pitch black, darkness. And I love this picture because, you know, the Bible, again, we see so many pictures of the cross in the Old Testament. So there were six days of creation and there were six hours, right, until the new creation. They rejected the light of the world and darkness covered the earth until 3 p.m. And again, uh, when Israel was in the Egyptian bondage, there were three days of darkness that preceded the first Passover. So in the first Passover, there were three days of darkness... And then the angel of death, right, passed over if he had the blood of the lamb in the shape of a cross. So darkness preceded 
Passover, right? The light of the world preceded Passover. So it was for three days, and now it's three hours. Again, a picture that that Passover was always pointing ahead to Jesus, not just remembering their deliverance and bondage, which is a wonderful thing, but it was always pointing to the Lord. Because see, again, after Jesus died on the cross, no more sacrifices. In the Passover, they had to bring a lamb and examine it for four days to make sure it was perfect before they could take that blood of the lamb and sprinkle it on the doorpost. And Jesus came in and he was examined for four days by the Romans. He was scourged, he was beaten, he was mocked. Then his blood was shed, cross of Calvary, and we've been redeemed because of it. Amen? And so this hours of darkness, anybody paying attention, three hours of darkness, again, it was three days of darkness that preceded Passover and three hours of darkness before it was finished on the cross. So the Passover clearly is a picture of the cross. I think I told you guys this just briefly. When we moved into the synagogue, I met with a whole bunch of the, uh, the priests that were, of the uh, rabbis. And I told, I told the assistants, I go, guys, I'm going to shoot straight with these guys because I don't want them kicking us out after a week. So I'm just going to tell them who we are, what we're all about, and God will either have us there or he won't. So I'm in a room with all these rabbis, and they're all asking me, so are you going to try to convert us? I said, absolutely. You better believe it. <laughs> I planted a church in Calabasas because it's 80% Jewish, and, I, and the Lord loves the Jewish people. By the way, there's a Jewish book written about a Jewish Savior. Amen? Amen? And praise God for it. And I love the Jewish people. And I said, by the way, I love Israel more than you do. And then we were talking about more things. And finally, I said, give me any chapter in the Old Testament, and I will show you Jesus. Give me any chapter you want. Go grab your Torah, pull a chapter out. I'll show you Jesus. And one of the rabbis said, how about the Passover? Oh, thank you, Jesus. Can I get an amen to that? Did he just say that? Remind me to give you some shekels later. Can I get an amen to that? And so I, I go through the Passover Seder and the blood of the lamb in the shape of a cross. And one of the parts of the Passover is the, the, called the afikomen. And the afikomen, they take three pieces of bread that are striped and pierced. And they're wrapped in linen. They pull the centerpiece out and they break it in half. And then they cover it and they wrap it up in linen. And they hide it. When the kids find it, they all celebrate. And I said, look, striped and pierced. By his stripes we are healed. Amen. He was wounded for our transgressions. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that you take the piece that represents Jesus, you break it in half, you cover it in linen, it's hidden. Jesus is buried in the tomb. When the kids find it, they all celebrate. When Jesus rose from the dead, we all celebrate. Guys, it's all about Jesus, amen? And they still let us meet there, praise the Lord, amen? Grace of God. Because I said, I'm going to tell them now because I don't want to be here two weeks and come in and go, dude, you guys are all about Jesus. Yeah, we are. We're all about Jesus. We're not going to be ashamed of that. Then it says there in verse 45, the sixth hour, and it says, Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. If you look in the Old Testament, it speaks of the veil as being what? Jesus is what? Who knows? His flesh, broken, torn. Amen? And the veil had been what separated man from the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest, only on Yom Kippur, only on the Day of Atonement, could the high priest go in, and usually he got to do it once in his lifetime, and he would go into the Holy of Holies, and there you have the Ark of the Covenant. We know that all points to Jesus, right? The manna, he's the bread of life. Aaron's rod, he's the great high priest. The Ten Commandments, he's the word, right? The angels, you know, the cherubim on both sides, covered with the mercy seat, because the law can only be forgiven by being covered by the mercy of God. Amen? 
And when you go into the tomb, after he raises from the dead, what do you see? Two angels on the side, blood in the middle. So he would go in and sprinkle the blood only on Yom Kippur. And so nobody else got to be in the presence of God like that. Nobody. But when Jesus died on the cross, when his flesh was torn, what happened? The, the veil was torn from top to bottom. And this was not some little sheet. This is a thick heavy that took, you know, many people to put up and it was reached down. It was torn from top to bottom. And what that does is it allows all of us anywhere and anytime, if you've been born again, you can enter into the presence of almighty God. You can enter into the Holy of Holies and have intimate fellowship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords when you're driving down the freeway in your car. Amen. Anywhere and everywhere you can enter into God's presence. And the sad part is sometimes we go days or weeks without doing it. They would plead and hope that maybe once in my lifetime, I'll be able to do that. Guys, we're the most blessed of all people who've ever lived. We have the completed revelation. We have the fullness of the Holy Spirit that was given out in the book of Acts. We've been poured, His Spirit's been poured out upon us. We know more of biblical truth than anybody who's ever lived. We have more access to it. Amen? But it also means we're more accountable. Amen? And we need to be more accountable. So, we're seeing the centurion. He's watching all of this. Now the veil's been torn. You can enter into God's presence. Look at verse 40, uh, more 45 there. So the earth was dark in the temple. The veil of the temple was torn. And then Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. What I want you to see here is that nobody took the Lord's life from him. He gave it up freely. Amen. Because he's in charge. He created all things. He said light is and light was. He was there before there was time and space. He's outside of time and space. He is the creator of all things. And so nobody takes his life from him. And so when the veil had been torn so that we know that we, have, uh, we can get into the presence of God, and now we see that the Lord has laid down his life. Now, one thing I want to say about the veil too, just as go back to this for a second. Too many people are trying to sew that veil back up. And what I mean by that is they're trying to make it so that you cannot just enter into God's presence unless you do something else first. Well, no, but yeah, you got to do this. You got to be baptized in our baptismal after taking our 12-week class. And if you don't do that, you don't get to go in. And there's always this thing where we're trying to, and, and, and here's the reality. The people that are most legalistic about things, the Bible says that they're the weaker brother. We think the people that are most legalistic, that have the most rules, are somehow the most spiritually mature. And again, we don't want to have cheap grace, right? Grace is not freedom to sin, it's freedom from sin. But we also don't walk around adding a bunch of rules. Here's what legalism is. It's me taking a personal conviction and making it prerequisite for your salvation. Amen? That's a legalist. Well, I just have a, I have a conviction not to watch television. So you have that window into hell in the corner of your living room, you're watching it, you're not saved, right? That's mentality, right? By the way, I have a TV in my house, and I like sports, and there it is, okay? But, but you have people with this mentality where they're sewing up the veil and adding to the cross of Calvary, and they're, you know, and again, we should be faithful to whatever those convictions got. If you have a conviction not to watch TV, I don't think that's a bad thing. But if you make it a prerequisite for someone else's salvation, you're a legalist, and you need to repent. Can I get an amen to that? And so we don't want to sew up the veil. Now, one thing that happens here as Jesus is at this point that we see here in verse 46, we know from Matthew's gospel in Matthew 27, right here at this point, that the earth quaked when the veil was torn, the rocks split, the graves opened, and people got up 
and were walking around, people who had once been dead, proving that Jesus had triumphed over sin and death. So dead people got up and were walking around in the city. And this is not a zombie movie, right? This is what happened. And it just proved that God had triumphed over sin and death. And you would think, the person who's always seeking after a sign, why didn't everybody get saved with this one? Because it says a, a perverse and wicked generation seeks after a sign. Amen? Jesus alone is enough. We don't need any more signs. We don't need any more proof. His word is enough, and who he is is enough. No one took our Savior's life. He freely gave it up out of his love for us. He willingly submitted to his arrests, his trials, his mockings, his beatings, his scourgings, and his crucifixion because he loves you. Why did he endure it? Because without it, you and I could not be saved. Verse 47, here's the centurion summing him up. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. We know from some of the other gospels, Mark, he says, truly this was the son of God. Luke says again, certainly he was a righteous man. And again, we see that this man recognized that Jesus indeed was God. And how did he recognize it? Just by sitting there at the cross, just seeing him endure what he endured, seeing the sky go dark, seeing the earthquake, seeing the, hearing the words he said from the cross, seeing how he endured it all. And just those moments at the cross was enough for this man to surrender his life to the Lord, to recognize he, who he was. And the sad part is that too many others say, well, that's not enough. I need more. I don't believe it. Well, if you don't believe what Jesus has done, uh, you, won't believe, uh, you, know, you won't believe even if an angel comes down and tells you. Read Luke 16. That's what it says. Final two points, or three points. Uh, cause you to be curious and concerned, but not fully committed. So he recognized Jesus as the Son of God, but look at the crowd and Jesus' acquaintances. It says, and while the crowd, whole crowd who came together to the site, seeing that he had what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So they beat their breasts. It's an expression of remorse and anguish. But at the same time, those who had been watching the crucifixion, many had stood off at a distance and they didn't know how to respond. And so they had a level of faith in the Lord, but at the same time, they, they you know, didn't really have the courage to be fully committed and to be recognized with the Lord. We know that Peter, what did Peter do when a girl came out and said, you're one of them? He denied him and he cussed and said, I don't even know him. And then he went away and wept bitterly. And I was a side note, but I love when Jesus raises from the dead. We'll see this on Sunday. One of the first things he says to Mary at the tomb is, go tell my disciples and especially Peter that I have risen. You know what that's called? That's called grace. Can I get an amen to that? He knew that Peter was hurting the most. Peter was suffering the most and he names him by name. And you know what? I believe God calls all of us by name. Calls us by name. Go tell my disciples and even that knucklehead Dave that I have risen. Amen. <laughs> and I'm thankful for his grace. Such a gracious God. Number six, given you courage to openly be identified with Jesus. Have you gotten to that place where you're unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where you're just, you, 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 you can't help but tell people that you love him 
and you, you look for divine appointments and you pray for opportunities to represent our Savior. Watch what happens here. And Joseph, Joseph's giving up a lot from the world's perspective, but he's giving up nothing when he compared to eternity. He says, now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. So he's part of the 71 member Sanhedrin. Again, sadly, good and just was a rare description of the Sanhedrin. Most of them were greedy and self-righteous, blind guides, vipers, whitewashed tombs. That's what Jesus called them, outwardly clean, but inwardly dead. Then it says of Joseph, he had not consented to the decision and deed. He was from Arimathea, Joseph Arimathea, a city of the Jews, and who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. So Joseph no longer bowed to peer pressure, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he began, he believed the claims that Jesus had made, and he was swapping religion for a relationship with Jesus. He was no longer putting his faith in being part of the Sanhedrin, no longer putting his faith in the robes that he wore or the position that he had. He finally recognized Jesus is the answer. And I'm going to get rid of religion. Now, again, I love what the word religion really means. Relingara in Latin, it means to relink. It's relinking sinful man back to holy God. So what sin separates us and Jesus restores us. Amen. So word religion, they're relinking sinful man back to holy God. It's a wonderful thing. But I hate what the word religion has come to mean, which is a bunch of self-made, man-made you know, self-righteous rules that we try to keep to somehow earn heaven. And we often, it's the very religious, most religious among us can re- remove Jesus completely from the equation. I mentioned, I was talking to a Mormon the other day. He told me Joseph Smith had to come to fix all of Jesus's failures. I thought I was going to have an aneurysm. I thought my head was going to explode on the spot. I said, Jesus failed Oh, yeah, that's why Joseph Smith. Jesus needed a polygamist, uh, child molesting, fairy tale writer who died in a gunfight to fix what he, the creator of the universe, couldn't do. Lord, help. Can I get an amen to that? But there's a mentality where we get caught up in religion and we get caught up in our own way of getting there and we lose sight of the fact that it's only Jesus, it's all about Jesus, it's only him and he and him alone is the one who's worthy to be worshipped and to be praised. Amen? So Joseph, he's done. Because here, when he goes to claim the body of Jesus, we'll see this on Sunday, when he goes to claim the body of Jesus, he's defiling himself, which means he can't participate in Passover. He's giving up the most religious day of the year because he's going to touch a dead body, which means he can't participate in all the things that take place on Passover. But he's recognized it's not about the rituals that matter. It's about the one that all of that has always pointed to. All the sacrifices have always pointed to Jesus. I've met the Savior of the world. I don't care about the religious nonsense anymore. They can keep it. I want Jesus. Amen? And that's what happens here with Joseph of Arimathea. Notice what it says here in verse 52 says, the man went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. Now, he was a disciple in secret back in John 19, along with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, right? Nicodemus, Nick, you know, comes by night, first episode of Nick at night, right? He comes by night, <laughs> and he goes to Pilate, right? And, and uh, you know, Nicodemus came because he didn't want the other religious guys to see him. You know, we know that you're saying a lot of good stuff, so... What do I got to do to go to heaven? He said, you must be born again, right? So a lot of people say, born again. Didn't Billy Graham make that up? No, Jesus said that. 
And some people say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm just not one of them born-again Christians. Well, there only are one kind of Christians. They're all born-again Christians, amen? Because we, we need to be born from above. But here we see this other, you know, man of the Sanhedrin, much like Nicodemus. We know from some of the uh, other companion texts that Nicodemus did get involved in helping Joseph of Arimathea with the body of Jesus. But he got to the point where he didn't care about religion. He cared about a relationship with the Lord. He was committed to Jesus. The cross polar, uh, you know, polarized him. He had a choice to make. He didn't care what it cost him anymore, monetarily, personally, positionally. He didn't care about the, the position he had within the religion or the church. He, all he cared about was getting right with Jesus. So we need to worry less about what people think about us and worry only about where we are with Jesus. Amen? Amen. And he says here in verse 53, he said, Then he took it down and asked him for the body of Jesus. He wrapped it in linen. He laid it in the tomb that was hewn out of a rock where no one had lain before. He defiled himself by partaking, from partaking in Passover. He gave up the rules and rituals to follow the Savior. And again, he touched the dead body, giving up Passover. And linen, uh, it's interesting, the cloth of the high priest on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement. But you know what's also interesting, though, is that same term for linen there is the same term that's used for the swaddling clothes that Jesus was wrapped in when he was born. And what most people don't understand, that more than likely Jesus was not born in a, a wooden uh, stable, but most animals were, were kept in caves. So more than likely when they came to see Jesus, he was lap, wrapped in linen in a cave when people first came to see him after he was born. And guess why? Because it was always pointing to why Jesus came, which is to be wrapped in linen in the tomb, and he was going to triumph over sin and death. And by the way, the Bible rocks. Amen? And then he says this, the day of the preparation and the Sabbath drew near and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. So Joseph of Arimathea took courage to be openly identified with Jesus. He stopped worrying about what anybody else thought. And this is not a word for every one of us. Amen. We need to stop worrying about what anybody else thinks. I don't, no one else is going to stand next to you on judgment day. You can't blame it on your neighbor or your boss or your spouse or anybody else. Amen. And we need to quit worrying about what other people think and, and only be committed to what, who we are in the Lord, what kind of relationship we have with him. And we should be unashamed of him because again, he hung on a cross for us. We should be able to stand up for him. Can I get an amen to that? So finally, look at these women again, continuing to trust Jesus without fully understanding because we know on Resurrection Sunday, they're going to come bringing spices. Some of the same spices, myrrh that was given to him at his birth. Again, playing with the fact that he was born to die. That was always the plan. But you don't bring myrrh for a guy who's risen from the dead. You bring that to anoint a dead body. But at least they came. Amen? They didn't fully grasp it, but they were willing to come. They wanted to honor the Lord. They, they were not in hiding. And praise God for them. Notice what it says, your last, two, last verse. It says, They returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. The women followed. The apostles had fled. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Jesus, our precious Lord and Savior, had submitted to the will of the Father. He'd taken your sin and my sin and endured the most horrendous death in human history, and he did it all out of love for you. And then he proves himself to be God three days later when he raises from the dead. See, other people can say, could maybe make a claim that they died for people. 
The reality is, even if they did, it wouldn't mean anything because they were sinners too in need of a Savior. Amen? No one else can save you. No one else can redeem you. No one else would die. No one else could die. No one else did die for you. But even if they died, how many of them rose from the dead three days later? Because that's, that's the game changer. Amen? Because see, he's proven himself to be God because he triumphed over sin and death. He alone is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He did it out of love for you. He endured all of it. He had divine appointments all along the way. He met Pilate. Pilate had a chance. Remember Pilate's wife said, dude, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mess with this guy. I'm not going to leave that dude alone. I think I'd let go. I, I, think I, I had a dream. Let that dude go. Right? She'll listen. Good, good point. It might listen to our wives once in a while. Can I get an amen to that? <laughs> Herod sought signs and wonders and missed Jesus. Barabbas headed for the death penalty and Jesus took his place. Simon of Cyrene, a devout religious man, traveled 800 miles to celebrate Passover and what looked like a disaster became an incredible blessing that brought him in contact with Jesus. The daughters of Jerusalem mourned for Jesus and Jesus warned them of greater judgment to come. The thieves had equal access to Jesus. One echoed, his wor echoed words of the religious leaders and of the blasphemers, if you are the Christ, get me down. They had a physical focus. But the second one confessed his sin, professed Jesus' sinlessness, didn't say get me down, but said, if you would gather me up when you enter your kingdom. The centurion witnesses Jesus' actions. He recognized him for who he truly is. He is a righteous man. He is the son of God. Joseph of Arimathea, polarized by the cross, did not consent to his crucifixion, cared for Jesus' body, purchased the tomb, defiled himself for Passover, and actions proved that he had believed Jesus' words. Again, do you believe? Do, the, do your actions point to your belief? See, the, what, Joseph, what Joseph of Arimathea did proved what he believed. He truly believed that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus was the Messiah they'd been waiting for, and he proved it by willing, being willing to be mocked by the world, to defile himself, to disqualify himself from the religion that he was following so heavily because he recognized who he was. And guys, the fact is that salvation in our lives, again, while, it, while it's by grace alone, faith alone, grace alone, at the same time, if we've truly been transformed, we will live different. Amen? Works are not the, fruit of, the source of salvation, but they are the fruit of salvation. So guys, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Amen? And we don't serve a dead God. We serve a risen and living Savior who has triumphed over sin and death. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this picture of the greatest act of love in all of human history. And Lord, we know you endured all of this out of love for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We don't deserve it. We're not worthy of it. You know us best and you love us most. And I pray if there's anybody here tonight that doesn't know you, the Lord, they would not leave here without you. The word tells us if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. If you're here tonight and you've never given your life to the Lord, maybe you've been caught up in religion, you're trying to reach God through your own good works, I want to encourage you again. If he says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. If you've never surrendered your life to him, just raise your hand where you are and I'll pray with you. Anybody at all. Don't leave here without the Lord. Loves you so much, you'd rather die than live without you. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace. And Lord, we celebrate this greatest act of love. We do this in remembrance of you. And we look forward to Sunday. We remember how you've triumphed over sin and death. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said...